When I was growing up in the late 60s and 70s and South Houston, you couldn't be a resident of that area without being a fan of the space race. And when I say the space race, I am talking about America's push to put men into space and eventually to put men on the moon. We had in our backyard there in South Houston and Clear Lake the NASA Johnson Space Center. Whenever you watch TV and you hear them talk about Houston, Houston, we have a problem. Houston, do you come in? That is the Johnson Space Center there in South Houston. And the astronauts all lived in the area, all of the original astronauts and the astronauts following that. They were a part of the communities and went to churches in the area. Most of the people around that area worked with NASA or for NASA in some capacity. I had friends. I had their parents worked there. We had our neighbors that worked there. And so you just grew up being a fan of space and of NASA. My very first birthdays from the time I was about one to the time I was about seven were all NASA-related, space-related. The very first picture that we have of me as a child that was not taken at a photography studio is me as a four-year-old in a black-and-white picture sitting in front of a black-and-white television watching Neil Armstrong land on the moon in the background. Space just consumed everything that we were a part of. I was an admitted space nerd. I had rockets all over my room. I had pictures. NASA would put out 8 by 10s of the groups that were going on the different missions. And I had pictures all over my wall of all the different Mercury and Gemini and Apollo missions. And some of them, my friends had got autographs. I had posters of the different rocket ships and the stages of rocket ships. And I just loved all that had to do with going to space and all that was involved in space. Everybody in my grades and my groups, if you asked them, what do you want to be when you grow up? They said, an astronaut. And unfortunately, as everyone began to age and move out of that stage, I didn't. I stayed in the space nerd category all the way through the space shuttle, all the way through my time leaving high school. And and I transferred from having posters and pictures to beginning to read about the astronauts. And I probably got 25 or 30 books on my shelf that all deal with the space missions and the astronauts and the astronauts' biographies. And one of my favorite books, even still to this day, is Tom Wolfe's book called The Right Stuff. It was made into a hit movie that won many awards, but the right stuff was based on our finding the very first seven Mercury astronauts. We decided we were going to space. We didn't have anything to base it on or to judge it on. Who do you send to space? Who is the best person that you strap to a rocket and send towards space? They began to test Test pilots. They thought test pilots would be the best. I mean, if you're going to strap somebody to a rocket, then why not have test pilots? So they brought military test pilots in, and they began to put them through rigorous tests to see if they had the right stuff. Physical tests, emotional tests. And you can read it. This is what the book is about, how so many of them failed. So many of them couldn't live up to it. But the thing about those tests is they really didn't know what to expect in space. So all of the tests were guesses. All of the tests were speculation. And originally, it was just military pilots. Now, over time, they came to understand that you needed scientists and engineers and people in other fields. But the very first seven astronauts and the astronauts that followed in the Gemini program and in the Apollo program were all test pilots. 
And when you say the right stuff, you are talking about the very first seven astronauts that were named and proclaimed as our new explorers of the world. Now, I tell you all of that and what it means, this idea of the right stuff, because today, whenever I am talking to pastors or ministry leaders or religious leaders about the future of the church, when we talk about where do we think the church is going to be in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, I think about that book and that movie, The Right Stuff, and those tests that they had to guess at to see as they went into an exploration of something they didn't know. Because that's what guessing the future of the church has ended up becoming. It's what it's been for a long time. Back in the 90s, you had the birth of what we call the modern church growth movement. People began to look to the future, began to say, how is the church going to change? And how is our nation going to change? And what can we do about it? And that brought on what we know today as megachurches. And then in the 2000s, you begin to see what is called satellite campuses or satellite churches, where one church had many campuses all over the area and sometimes all over the state or all over the nation. And one pastor from a central location. And you began to hear more about sociology in the church than you did theology. There were lots of terms thrown around. People would talk about generational changes and shifts and new church models and postmodernism and going and taking these paradigm shifts, all with the mindset of how do we plan for the future of the church? How do we look forward and help the church not only grow but stay relevant? Now, I want you to understand, I'm not talking bad about any of those principles or any of those types of churches, but we have now come long enough that we can go back and begin to evaluate whether or not those changes worked, whether or not they made a difference, whether or not we began to grow and see our witness expanded. How effective were all of those speculations? Because you see what it led to in the 90s and the 2000s is everyone was worried. Everybody was talking about the doom of the church and the church is going to end and the church in America is going to look like the church in Europe and it's going to begin to lose influence. It's going to begin to close. And so everybody was trying to look for the next best thing that you could bring and try in your church to help them become more relevant to their community. And pastors would go to conferences or church leaders would go to conferences and they would hear how God was working in California or Chicago or Charlotte or Dallas. And then they would take these principles and programs from those pastors and those churches and they would bring them back to their church and implement them. Only to find out that those programs and those principles were not one size fits all. What works in Dallas or Charlotte or California or Chicago doesn't work in East Texas or Western Tennessee or Western North Carolina. And what began to change as a youth minister and as a student pastor, I began to see young pastors that were coming out of college and coming out of seminary and called to ministry instead of going into an established church and helping that church transform and transition into becoming a church for the future and going through all of the blood, sweat, and tears it takes to helping a church transform and transition. Instead, these young dynamic pastors were just going down to the strip mall in the suburb area of a growing community and starting their own church. 
Why go to an established church where you had to deal with all of the problems of getting people to change and getting people to examine themselves when you could just go and start a church from scratch and do whatever you wanted, however you wanted, and people would come to that kind of church. And we saw those churches begin to grow. It happened at the expense of the more established churches. Those churches began to die off. Those churches began to close their doors. Now, 20 to 25 years later, we look back And while we can say all of these churches sprung up and all of them seem to be dynamic and all of them seem to grow, the reality is that the number of Christians in North America has steadily decreased in the last 20 years. The number of baptisms in all churches has decreased. The number of new converts bringing people outside of the church into the church has decreased. So what happened if all these churches were dynamic and they were growing and you see all these people coming to church and yet the numbers were still decreasing? Either we were doing nothing more than moving members around from church to church, what we call swapping sheep, or we were defining down what it really means to be a Christ follower and what it means to be a healthy church. We had a problem. And it seems to me what... Back in the 90s and the early 2000s was a casual conversation. Churches would look out and they'd say, we're doing okay. Maybe we need to shift some things. Maybe we need to change some things. Now, today, if you go and visit with pastors and church leaders, it's become a panic. Even in those once growing and young and healthy churches. It's a panic to to look ahead and say, how are we going to stay ahead of the curve? And how are we going to keep the doors open? And how are we going to keep growing? And, And how are we going to keep people coming to church? And what is the next big thing? Everybody's looking for it. I get at least five emails a week of people promising the next big thing that is going to keep the church moving forward. And what I recognize in my 30 years of ministry with the idea that I told you earlier that the greatest way to look forward is to look in our past, is that we in the church and as church leaders have seemed to have forgotten that we have had the best church growth model all along. The most effective church growth model. The most effective new and best thing that will make the church relevant to their community. And we've had it all along. We've just discounted it. And it's found in our heritage. And for 2,000 years, it has been the foundation of the church. And I can't help but think if many church leaders and pastors spend half as much time expounding and expanding and looking at their heritage and their legacy as they do trying to find the next best thing, we'd have much healthier churches in America. And we wouldn't see the declining numbers. Now, as I said earlier last week, I suggested to you that it's very difficult to know where you are as a church unless you can examine where you've come from. It's very difficult to know where you want to go as a church until you can see where you came from and really how you got to being where you are. Now, I'm not talking about living in the past. I'm talking about learning from the past. I'm talking about letting the past, our mission and our vision, guide us as we move into the future. It's not about finding the next big thing or the right personality or the right fit. It's about getting back to the right stuff. 
Now, as I said, we were in this series, This Is Us, and we were examining who we are as a church and what we believe and where we came from. And my goal in preaching this series is that hopefully through this study, and if you've missed it, you need to go back and listen to it online and catch up because each week is very important because I believe that out of all of these studies, we are going to begin to see some ideas about where we need to go, who we are going to be as First Baptist Church in the next 10 and 20 and 50 50 and 100 years. Because out of examining who we are and what we believe, I believe we are going to get a vision for our future. And not only just a vision of where we're going, but how we are going to get there. That's why I believe this series is so important. As I said last week, I took us from the Reformation to today. And this morning, we're going to go even further back. We're going to go to the first church, the church that Jesus described in that passage I read from Matthew 16 the church that the gates of hell will not prevail against. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2, and you've got it in your order of worship. You can follow along, and most of you have already heard these passages before if you've been in church for any length of time. And so what I'm telling you this morning is nothing new, but I believe it's time for us to reevaluate it. I believe it's time for us to evaluate it in light of where we are as a church. Because I, I believe what we find in this passage shows that this church had the right stuff. And if we can learn to apply what this church did to our churches, we can begin to see God once again pour out His Spirit on communities and on families and on neighborhoods and on regions. Now, if you remember in Acts, Acts is really, if you've got your Bible and you're looking for it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts is Luke's really second volume of the Gospel of Luke. He picks up with the birth of the church. And we know in Acts 1.15 that Jesus ascended into heaven after His resurrection, and He left behind about 120 believers. That was the early church in the world, 120 Christ followers that gathered in Jerusalem and met in the upper room and began to pray. And the Bible says, as they prayed, the Holy Spirit began to fill them. They became aware of the power, tangible power, of God in their life. And it changed them. So much so that as they left the house in the upper room, people thought they were drunk. People thought they were crazy. And that led to Peter standing on the steps at Pentecost, beginning to preach to say, no, they are not drunk. They are filled with the Spirit. This is what God promises everyone who trusts in Him. And it says that when he finished that message there at Pentecost, there were over 3,000 new believers. In a five-week period, they went from 120 Christ followers to over 3,000 Christ followers. What made this little group of embattled, discouraged, but faithful people so committed that they were willing to face opposition and persecution and they changed the world? So much so that within 300 years of the upper room experience, Christianity became the official religion of Rome. The emperor became a Christian. And that within a thousand years of that upper room experience, that early church had begun to reach and penetrate the known world, the discovered world at its time. I want to suggest to you they had a couple of things right that we could do very well to learn in the church today as we move forward. So let's listen to what he says. Luke writes in verse 42, For they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. For everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone who had a need. 
For every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I'm convinced that the future of the church in general, and this church in particular, is found in this description of the very first church. Because I I believe it always has and always will be the skeleton foundation of a healthy and active church. The church we want to be. The church we need to be. The church, this community, and this region, and this area needs us to be. So what did they have? What, what were some things that jumped out? And I'm just going to suggest, and you can read it, it's in there, and it's pretty simple. What did they have that made them so different? Well, first of all, they had the right methods. Their methods, how they did church, was not based on focus groups or trends or changing cultures or, or generational changes. It wasn't based on what a sociologist said. Their methods were based on the Word of God. The very first thing we find out about this church back at the beginning of Acts is they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was tangibly present in everything they do. Now we've talked about the Holy Spirit some, probably more than most Baptist churches. We don't don't talk. When Baptist churches moved, if you want to go and study trends of churches, and this is extra side note, but if you study trends of churches, Baptists were really the rural white-collar churches back in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and that's why it grew. The mainline churches, the Protestant churches, the Presbyterian and Luther, they were more of the, the upper crust. You know, the white-collar, blue-collar, that was the Baptist church. That's back when we didn't call it Holy Spirit, we called it Holy Ghost. But then all of a sudden we started getting sophisticated, and we wanted to attract a better crowd. Because to pay for our bigger buildings, we had to attract a better crowd. And as we pushed, as the more mainline Protestant churches moved up and grew to a smaller subsection, we grew into the place where they were. And we became more about order and more about control and more about direction and less about the Holy Spirit. Because you can't explain and you can't understand and you can't control the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit shows up, it's a mess. It messes with your order of service. It messes with your plans. You know, so many of us, we come to church and we've got a plan. I'm going to go to church and we're going to sing and the pastor's going to preach 30 minutes, hopefully. And then we're going to get out and we're going to beat the Methodist to the restaurant. And that's our normal routine. And we're just going to do that routine. And we don't want anything to change that routine. I remember in one of the first Baptist churches I served in, the first time we changed something in the order of service. You'd have thought we needed to have a church business meeting. I mean, I literally, and I don't think I have a serve, but they were holding it up looking like, do you not see? We've got this planned out. You see, that early church, the Holy Spirit was so tangible because every member submitted everything that they had to the Holy Spirit, so much so that He led and filled everything that they did. They didn't do anything that wasn't for the glory of God and sharing their story. That was what they were about. Exalt the King and extend the kingdom. And what we need to get back to in the church is to stop so much walking by sight. Walking by what we see. Walking by what we can explain. Walking by what we understand. And start walking by faith. When God begins to call us to something bigger than what we're doing. When God calls us to put a thousand shoeboxes together. And our first reaction is, there's no way we can do that. That tells you you're walking by sight. 
When God tells us that we're going to raise money instead of finishing what we started and building, we're going to give all of our Harvest Day offerings to churches that have been affected by hurricanes. And we raised $25,000 and we wrote checks to five churches not expecting anything in return. That doesn't make any sense. But that's the way the Holy Spirit operates. When Christians in the church begin to submit and begin to listen to the Holy Spirit and let Him have control, all of a sudden the church begins to come to a place where they don't do anything if it's not led by the Holy Spirit. Because what I found in churches is the Holy Spirit is either going to be in control or He's not. The Holy Spirit's not consultant that we call in to tweak our ideas, to tweak our plans. To, you know, we say, Holy Spirit, come and you know, give us some ideas. Here's where we're going, but you tell us how we can get there. No! The Holy Spirit has to be in it from the first. And this early church was so filled with the Holy Spirit that you could tangibly sense it. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? The people that that didn't tell the whole truth, people were giving everything they had to the church, and Ananias and Sapphira came and said, we want to give everything to the church, and we sold a piece of land, and we're giving all of it to the church. And really, they, they didn't give all of it to the church, but they gave a lot of it. Today, you would get your name in the bulletin. I mean, let's be honest, right? They sold land, and they came and gave a huge sum of money to the church. Do you know what happened in their day? The Holy Spirit was so present in the congregation that when you lied, when you were dishonest, you were struck down instantly because God can't tolerate sin. God can't tolerate fake. Either the Holy Spirit's in charge or He's not in charge. In that early church, the Holy Spirit ran things. And not only was the Holy Spirit a part of their method, but the second thing, and most importantly... What did it say there? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The Bible, the Word of God, was the central theme to everything that they did. Because it's the power to change lives. You understand that the power is not in my message. It's not in my illustrations. It's not in my order. It's not in the words. The power is here. The Bible says the power that changes lives, that sets people free, is found in this. And everything the church does has to be grounded in this. Everything the church does has to be led by this. We need to be teaching it and leading it and helping people encouraged to memorize it and study it. It's why we have small groups and Bible studies and discipleship time so that when you leave here, you can go to a small group down the hall and they will talk about how you can apply what we just talked about to your life. Because this book is the foundation of the change of churches. Methods can change, and and programs change, and even styles of worship change. But the message can never change. I'm all for adapting it. I'm all for trying to rebrand and package it so that it communicates to a new generation. But you can't change it, and you can't water it down, and you can't exclude it. We have become so focused today in many churches on being accepted by our culture and being a part of our culture that we have taken out and diminished and watered down the very things that bring life change. The very things that make this powerful, we have taken out so that people will like us. We don't talk about sin. We don't talk about repentance. We don't talk about holiness. Because those things can be offensive. And those things can make people mad. And those things can be divisive. But it is those things, when we recognize our sin, that brings us to repentance. Allows me to change my life. It is those things that allow the Holy Spirit to come in and take control of more areas of my life. Too many churches today emphasize their personalities and their programs. Come hear our music. Hear our pastor. Come to our programs. And all of those things are good. 
But our most important emphasis needs to be the Word of God. God's plan to build a great church, to maintain a healthy church, to grow an active church, always will revolve around this book. Going a method that works, that has worked. Give the Holy Spirit control of the church. Start walking by faith and do everything you can through the Word of God. Build everything around it. When that happens, the church becomes a place to believe a place where you can come and grow spiritually, a place where you can hear from the Holy Spirit and experience the Holy Spirit. They had the right methods. But not only did they have the right methods, but secondly, they had the right motivation. See, motivation speaks to our heart. Why do we do what we do? Why do we do it the way that we do it? Why do we do it how we do it? Why do we do it the structure that we do it? Motivation always looks at the whys. Do we do it because we've always done it? It's just what we do on Sunday? Do we do it because that's what's expected? Do we do it because we want to grow the church? Do we do it because we want to keep the doors open and pay the bills? That doesn't sound really spiritual, but to be honest, that's the motivation of a lot of churches. And even the idea of growing the church, that can't be your first motivation. Because if you say the most important motivation of the church, why we do what we do, is to grow, then you fall into the trap of pragmatism. Because you can start looking and saying, these things work. And if it works, it's the most important thing. And you start elevating what works over what's right. And you fall into a trap. Why do we do what we do? Why did this church and the early church do what it did? Well, it's real easy to look. In verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Their motivation was fellowship. That word fellowship is is very popular in Baptist churches. Because we interpret fellowship as eating. Getting together, eating, covered dish, gathering together. But the word that he's using... Listen, and if that was the only meaning of fellowship, then Baptist churches would be blowing the doors off. Because we got that kind of fellowship down. But the word he uses in the Greek there for fellowship is much greater than that. It's defined as a closeness, a sharing, a common bond, a feeling of togetherness, a belonging one to another. It is about finding a place you belong. Everybody today is looking for a place to belong. Young people today are looking for a place that they can be accepted and loved and fit in. That's this word, fellowship. It's a place that when you're not there, when you miss it, you feel its absence. You know what's the greatest thing I miss when I'm not here, when I go on vacation or I'm out of town? I I love our music and I love, you know, preaching and being able to preach. But what I miss is you. I miss the encouragement and the body and the fellowship. It's what gets me up on Sunday morning. Because no matter what happened to my week, no matter what I'm going through, I know that I can come here and somebody is going to encourage me and somebody is going to bless me and somebody is going to be a part of what I'm going through. And I know that you will walk beside me. People come to our church and they say, well, there's something about that church. I just can't define it. They use terms like friendly and accepting and warm. And all of those things are good. I like the term belong. We have learned to be a family. That's why we sing that song every Sunday morning at the end of the service to remind you that no matter what happens this week, you're a family. We have found a place where we can belong. See, my dream for this community, for this region, this area, is that we would be a church where people of all races and all backgrounds, economic and social backgrounds from all parts of this county and the surrounding counties can come and find a place to raise their kids and to grow old and and to, to learn together and be spiritually a part of a community, to belong, to be accepted, to grow together. 
They were motivated by fellowship. But he continues on there in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. What motivated that church was fellowship, being belonging, and prayer. If you go and examine the most effective dynamic churches throughout history, you will find that all of them have two things in common. They might have a whole lot of other stuff, but all of them have two things in common. They are committed to the Word of God, and they are committed to prayer. No great work move of God ever happened that didn't start in prayer. Last week I told you about the Great Awakenings. You know how that second Great Awakening started? It started with a group of people meeting in a small room and praying and saying, we are not going to stop praying until God shows up. We are not going to stop praying until the power of God is felt in this community again. What motivated this early church to get together and to come together? It was prayer. They prayed for each other. They prayed with each other. They prayed by faith, believing that God was going to move. A church that is motivated by prayer is a place where you know that if somebody says, I will pray for you, you feel it. That week you feel it. You know that they prayed for you. You can depend on it. A church that is motivated by prayer will not do anything, make any decisions until it has been bathed in prayer. They were motivated by prayer. They were motivated by fellowship. And then there's a last thing that motivated them. Verse 44 and 45, I skipped 43. We'll come back to it to end. It says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They were selling their possessions and goods, and they gave to anyone as they had a need. They were motivated by prayer. They were motivated by belonging, community, fellowship. But lastly, they were motivated by being there for one another, meeting the emotional, physical, and spiritual needs of one another. Now, I've got some friends that love using this passage as a proof text to talk about how the church needs to be more involved in social justice. I had people say, listen, this is talking about the church was socialist in their very first foundation. But you see, there's a big difference. They volunteered to give. They weren't made to give. Socialism makes you give. Spirit-led Christianity gives because it sees a need and wants to give. What made them want to be a part of the church? Because they knew that no matter what they were going through, there were people there that can help them. In a church that's motivated by giving and reaching and meeting the needs of others, you don't have to have a sermon on giving. You don't have to be told, look, these are the needs that we have in the church. You are aware. You hear it. You sense it. Because when you're filled with the Holy Spirit and and you're praying and you are in fellowship with one another, you can't help but see the spiritual needs and the physical needs and the emotional needs of your fellow Christians. If God puts somebody on your heart, somebody's need on your heart, It's not so that you can come and have us put it on the prayer list. We will, and we always want to help, and we always want to partner. It's probably because God's trying to teach you something or bless you through your willingness to be obedient and meet that need of your friend or your family member. See, the early church, they were all together. You didn't didn't have to say, so-and-so's hurting and -and so-and-so's. You just knew. You sensed it. You were aware of it. And you didn't just know and walk away. You knew and went and said to them, what can I do? How can I help? That's a church that will change the world. we got a lot to learn from the first church. But I want you to hear me. They were not perfect. Matter of fact, they were a hot mess because they were just like us. They weren't perfect people. If the church wasn't a hot mess, we wouldn't have 15 letters at the end of the New Testament. 
of Peter and Paul and John all writing letters to churches, rebuking them and correcting them. Because they kept making a mess. But do you know, even though they kept making a mess, even though they kept falling astray, you know why we still have a church today? Because they built their foundations based on the right methods and the right motivation. If we want to know what's going to make a difference in the church tomorrow, all we've got to do is look at the past. And let me close with this. This is the exciting part. They had the right methods. They had the right motivations. They were a place to believe and a place to belong. But they also had the right results. Listen to what he describes in verse 43. For everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders, and many wondrous and miraculous signs were done. What did that mean? That mean when they gathered together, God showed up. When's the last time you left church in awe of God? Your answer says a lot more about your motivation than it does the singing and the preaching. Because it's your motivation for why you came that will lead to how you leave came to belong, came to meet others' needs. They came to pray. They came to study God's Word. They came filled with the Spirit. And it says, God showed up. That's my prayer every week. That's why you hear me say it. It's in our order of service. My prayer is that we create an environment in this place so no matter who you are, where you are in your spiritual journey, you have an encounter with a living Savior. They were in awe. They expected and experienced miracles. People all the time come to me and say, where are the miracles today? see miracles happen. You don't read about it in the news. It's because you're not looking. Miracles happen every time we get together. The greatest miracle in the Bible is taking somebody that's dead and bringing them back to life again. It's what God did in my life. Somebody with no purpose, no direction, no hope, and gave me a new life. That's miraculous. Every week in church, prodigal sons come home and families are reconciled and marriages are put back together and, and God is at work. There are healings taking place, emotional, spiritual, and physical healings. God is at work. And the reason most people don't see it is we don't do a good enough job celebrating. We need to celebrate those miracles. They celebrated. Verse 46 and 47. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in the homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily people who were being saved. They grew not because it was their motivation. They grew as an outflow of their motivation. And I like that word it says, glad and sincere heart. That word for glad is where we get the word joy. They were filled with joy. Every time they got together, they were overwhelmed with joy. You see, joy is not happiness. Joy is not based on situation or circumstances. Joy is something that comes bubbling out of you. My prayer is that every time we gather together, you will be so overwhelmed with joy from singing the praises of God, celebrating what He's done in your life, coming and being able to be with other believers, that it just bubbles up. Let me, let me ask you, let me, let me just give you a test. Some of you are going to leave in just a minute, and you're going to go to a restaurant. Go eat. I want you to look around at the people there. Look at their faces. Look at their countenance. See if you see joy. Look at the people. I wonder if you can guess who just came from worshiping their Lord and Savior and who just came from the ball fields or who just got up out of bed. What I notice a lot of times is that the people that seem more joyful are the people who just got out of bed than the people who just spent time praising their Savior. Go look at people. Then look at yourself. Do people see joy in you? Because you see, joy is contagious. Why did they add to their numbers daily? Because they saw a bunch of joyful people. Who would you rather be around? Joyful people or frowning unhappy people? When the church is joyful, not, not made up, when the church is joyful, genuinely joyful, people, I want to go there. I want to be a part of that. 
They grow. They add to their neighbor. Even in the midst of struggles, even in the midst of a horrible week and a bad Sunday when taxes are due on Monday, even in the midst of all of that, when you've been lifting up and glorifying God's name and what, celebrating what you believe, you know what happens? God, the Bible says, takes your mourning and turns it into dancing. He takes your tears and turns them into laughter. And He takes your sorrow and turns it into joy. That's the right stuff. That's the stuff that will move us into tomorrow. That's the right methods. That's the right motivation that will propel and guide us. I remember reading a story. The mayor of a small town was going home. As he was going home, he came across some city workers that were on one of the streets, and he stopped and he watched them as they were going on the streets. And, and they, he watched, and there were two workers, and one would go and dig a hole and put it in the wheelbarrow, and the guy would come behind him, and he would get his shovel in a wheelbarrow, and he would take and he would fill in that hole. And they would go to the next place. And one would dig a hole and put it in government work, right? So he'd put it in the hole and come back and put it back in the hole. And the mayor thought, what in the world are these guys doing? What are they doing? So he went up to them and he yelled at them and said, I need an explanation. I said, Mayor, you don't understand. We're a part of the city beautification. We work for you. We are part of the trees installation. Usually there's three guys. There's one of us that digs a hole, one of us that puts a tree, and the next one comes and covers the hole. But the third guy's sick today, but we're here. We can laugh, but listen, for many of us, that's the way we do church, just a routine. We just come and we sing and we pray and we hear some music and we may tear up or get emotional and we just go back home and do the, the same old thing. During the late 70s and early 80s, as a space freak, space travel became routine. When I was a kid, they canceled everything. ABC, CBS, and NBC. They were launching a space. And you watched for a week. Some of you that have seen some of the movies when, when, when Apollo 13, they didn't think they were coming back. I mean, that was 24 hours a day news before there were 24 hours a day. And you sat and watched because it was news. It was exciting. It was something different. Then they moved into Skylab and they stopped going to the moon. And they still went to space and space shuttles. And, and it's just routine. They didn't, even can't, they didn't even show it on TV anymore. You didn't even think, oh, somebody's rocket ship launched. Until when? Until 1986 when there was a disaster and the Challenger blew up got everybody's attention sadly that's what happens in the church we just go through our routine go through our routine go through and what was once exciting and once joyful and once celebratory is now just routine and we don't recognize it until disaster strikes see what i'm trying to tell us as first baptist church at blowing rock we're not going to wait till disaster strikes i just don't want to do church because doing church never changed anybody i want to be the church i want to have the right motives the right methods and i want god to produce the results not me that is the right stuff let's pray